Hello? Message. How's everybody doing today? Sunday, July 24th, 2022. Okay, we're going to hear some news report. This first one, or maybe more than one, but we're going to hear a little bit of uh, reparations to California. Assembly Bill 3121, which you all have been hearing about in this podcast and probably in your your social media. So we're going to hear some of it is months old or years old, but we'll just hear what they have to say. Okay, stay safe out there. Stay healthy. Reparations Task Force is making history with a major decision on who will receive compensation. The first of its kind task force was put together by Governor Gavin Newsom back in 2020. Now, after hours of testimony and debate, the group has voted five to four that reparations should be paid to descendants of black slaves who were living in the United States during the 19th century. Chairperson of the California Reparations Task Force, Camila Moore, joins me now with a little bit more on all of this. Camila, thank you for being here. I know that California is the only state in the U.S. to move ahead with a study and a plan for reparations like this. So how has this process process been to try to figure this all out? Hi, thank you for having me. Um, We started the California Reparations Task Force meeting in June of last year. Um, And since June, we've held a series of virtual public hearings on a variety of topics, but starting with the transatlantic slave trade to the institution of slavery, to more contemporary harms um, against African-Americans in California and the, and the United States more broadly around uh, predatory lending practices, environmental racism, racism in banking, tax and labor, amongst other issues as well. And so the ongoing, we've had an ongoing conversation about who should be eligible for reparations. And we finally resolved that question uh, at this yesterday afternoon. Now, what were some of the key issues that you faced during all these ongoing discussions and debates? Right, and so the framing around the community of eligibility to the task force was around, should it be race-based, so all black Californians, regardless of national or even immigrant origin, or should it be lineage-based, so where you can you know, trace your ancestry to an enslaved or free African-American person who was living in the United States prior to the 19th century. And so there were amazing arguments on both sides, um, but five task force members decided, uh, along with myself, that a lineage-based approach would be um, most apt. Uh, so Camila, how significant do you think was one, the creation of this task force and finally reaching this decision? Well, I think, of course, it's history in the making, and it's a long time coming. The history of lineage-based reparations advocacy literally starts during enslavement uh, with Belinda Sutton and Callie House, who were one of the first African-American women to advocate for reparations for ex-slaves, to Queen Mother Audley Moore in the 1960s and the Black Panther Party, who also 
fought for uh, reparations in their platforms, to grassroots Afri activists today um, who were responsible for um, the enactment of AB 3121, along with Secretary of State Shirley Weber, and of course, California Governor Gavin Newsom. So why do you think these reparations, one, why are they necessary? And what will this compensation look like? Will these be cash payments or will it come in other forms? So the task force still has to decide what forms of compensation would look like. And we've actually hired an economic consultant team that includes Dr. Sandy Darity, William Spriggs, um, and other economists to help the task force uh, crunch the numbers essentially in terms of what compensation could look like. And to your point about why reparations is important, we know that the slaves were promised 40 acres and a mule, um, and that was rescinded um, due to uh, discrimination. Um, and so, you know, reparations is about accounting for that broken promise of reconstruction and repairing um, the, the, the transferred harms to the direct descendants of those enslaved people. And, and I know this is a really complicated question, but as best as you can sum it up, how did you link those wrongs with how they're impacting people still today? Well, th that's a really good question because in the statute itself, AB 3121, it mandates the task force to study and develop reparations proposals on the lingering negative effects of slavery against particular, a particular group of people, and that being freed African slaves and their descendants. So there are many different lingering or badges and incidents of slavery, um, like homelessness, um, like mass incarceration, um, amongst many other factors um, that are still a badge and incident of slavery in 2022 that has to be eradicated um, in order for true equity uh, to be achieved. And so that's the, the historic task that we have as a, a nine-member task force. All right, Camila Moore, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. George Stephanopoulos.
Support of slavery, segregation, and racial terror are just some of the harms perpetuated by the state, according to California's first-in-the-nation task force on reparations for African Americans. The report calls for action to address those wrongs. Task Force Chair Camila Moore says the recommendations include expanded voter registration, making it easier to hold violent police accountable, and improving black neighborhoods. In this first report, we're really just documenting the harms against the African-American community. But in terms of compensation, we still have to have conversations about that. And um, the compensation aspect of this program will be in our second report. The task force voted in March to limit reparations to descendants of U.S. slaves or descendants of a free black person living in the U.S. prior to the end of the 19th century. It does not include compensation to all black people in California. San Diego City Councilwoman Monica Montgomery Stepp is one of nine members across the state on the Reparations Task Force. She told KPBS in a written statement, The task force has made it clear that reparations for African Americans are critical for rectifying systemic disenfranchisement. This interim report begins to lay the foundation for providing a proposal to the California legislature and serves as an example for the federal government to follow. Moore says the report is the first government commission study focused on addressing the unique needs of the African-American community since the 1968 Kerner Commission. She says a key recommendation includes a special office with experts in genealogy to help people document their eligibility for financial restitution. To assist um, the African-American community with demonstrating their eligibility because I think the task force understands that the burden shouldn't be on the individual, it should really be on the state. The report marks the halfway point for the two-year task force's work. The draft report does not provide a comprehensive reparations plan, which is due to lawmakers before July 1st, 2023. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. is that California entered the Union 
as a free state and that Jim Crow and racism never existed here. But a year-long examination that included expert testimony and history records by the California Reparations Task Force exposed that narrative as a myth. Those dominant narratives have been pretty much altogether dispelled, right? We learned very early on in the process that California did have slavery in the state. Um, we've learned very on in the pro- early on in the process that Jim Crow did exist in California. Moore says that reality didn't just impact African Americans in the past. Its devastating consequences continue into the present day through laws, policies, and institutions. The task force calls them badges of slavery, and Moore says they pervade every sector of civil society. We outlined uh, you know, racial terror, separate and unequal education, po- political disenfranchisement, housing segregation, racism in environment and infrastructure, the pathologizing of the black family, control over creative, cultural, and intellectual life, stolen labor and hindered opportunity, an unjust legal system, mental and physical harm and neglect, and then lastly, the wealth gap. The report outlines numerous recommendations to help repair slavery's damage and the lingering effects on black Americans. Proposals include free health care and interest-free home loans. The task force is also proposing that California create an agency to support genealogical research to help people confirm their eligibility for reparations. To qualify, a person must be a descendant of an enslaved black person or of a free black person living in the U.S. before the end of the 19th century. Dr. Evelyn McDowell, whose testimony led to some of the proposals around eligibility, says... Genealogical research is also key to true self-knowledge. It is extremely important uh, for yourself, for your own self-love, to know who you are and where you came from so you can identify um, how you fit in the history of this country. So I, I just think it, it, it is a, it's a good thing for us individually to do. It's a good thing for our country to do. How are we ever going to heal from this history of slavery? Economists say any meaningful healing must include a commitment by the federal government to fix the nationwide wealth gap at an estimated cost of $14 trillion. And that's not all. In addition, they estimate the debt owed for the stolen labor through the enslavement of black people alone is a little over $6 quadrillion. Jade Hindman, KPBS News.
bouquet for Sylvia Plath, inspired by her poem, Tulips, by Wanda Lea Brayton. Bouquet for Sylvia Plath. Ignore the loud stretching of flowers, Sylvia. Their breath aching toward an open sky. Their fragrance will evaporate soon enough to forget how vivid they were. Remember their tender roots instead, shuddering beneath the bitter soil that rages, cracking under first frost's leaden foot. They retreat into the dusky dark, their sinews yearning for warmth that wanes. Ah, but there are still seeds whispering in the yard, singing slowly those ancient secrets of spring. The blooms will wilt as they are wont to do. It is their duty to fade from trembling fingers grasp. The petals will fall, perhaps to be savored and saved for potpourri, a scent that lingers long after the gift was given and gone. The mandates of survival require us to tend our gardens well, to remove unwanted weeds, and thrust our hands into this daunting dirt. Our stems are stronger than any wind that shivers through our lives. There will always be more flowers to come. It is only these moments alone that are few and fierce. Fledglings have fallen. Fledglings have fallen from their nest. A song in their ancient rubied throats lost to the descending darkness of an unmitigated demise. Too soon they 
perished before they felt the rise of primordial wind beneath their nascent wings. They instinctively trusted the strength of the bow they breathed upon, not understanding the power of an oncoming storm. Their parents trapped under turned leaves until it passed and they could pursue home again. When they arrived in the emptiness you left behind, the music was muted by savage fear. They dared not look for you, knowing your tiny hearts had become a long, strange melody they could not hear. An odd mapping of blood on stones below their eyes. A poem titled Language, inspired by the novel Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert. Poem by Wanda Leah Brayton titled Language. Moments may lodge in the tightening of our throats, separated from sound. Only a murmur comes or a moan, a sudden silence speaking volumes never written or recorded in any language save that of a heart swelling bursting its banks stunned into a precious pause that has no definition no Borders etched on any map. They can be seen in languishing gestures coiled inside cloak shadows caused by a trembling hand that reaches out midway between here and where it meant to go, then bravely goes on, gathering those same shadows into something that finally 
makes sense. They cannot be discerned under a sterile microscope, nor viewed through a stargazer's eyes. They must be experienced as an individual fragment of time that ceases to move seen only through the latticed whisper of a butterfly's stilled wing a portion of song given only to you only by the glistening smile of a unanimous universe there right there just before you blink a poem titled Norma Jean inspired by Marilyn Monroe's poetry written by Wanda Leah Brayton Norma Jean your sinuous vines were meant for more than bearing fruit for gathering wind in your leaves curled against the storms the soil shuddered beneath your feet swaying within the onslaught of unrepentant tides you were golden a kinetic glow surrounding your skin too many longed to touch and tear. When the wind grew too fierce, you burrowed beneath your slow blankets of flame, surging, trembling, still. We are sustained by your tragic warmth. Restlessly drink from your wild vintage. A poem titled Unfeathered. A short poem by Wanderlea Brayton. Flight is precious to those who are earthbound. We see this unending sky and covet wild wings we do not have attached to our mortal frames. Yet still, our souls soar beside the fragile bird 
who lingers a lot. Steadfast, we long to seek those radiant realms where moonlight swirls without falling. We drift beside quiet streams and imagine the sea. We are creatures of gravity soliciting the stars. A short poem titled Semblance. Like this sky, tenebrous, I split spilling remnants of song, wet bouquets gathered into my arms, dense language reminiscent of loam, categories defy mirrors soliloquy labels obsequious without a discerning glance for what comes seeking wind finding flame instead a short poem Songs of Neruda, inspired by an excerpt from the poem To Many Names by Pablo Neruda. Flowers remembered with tender bitterness the wild and willful pleasure you found in a moment composed of only roots and stones, neglecting their fragile sense with your broad hand, your brimming eyes. They have forgiven you with songs of unfolding silk. Dusky petals drift fragrances slowly across somber soil embracing you now. Thank you for listening.
Hello? Message. of hope to find hope in the midst of despair is a sacred thing born of wings we cannot remember we once had not knowing we will have them again to wrench joy from the jaws of unthinking degradation is a triumph beyond compare. To find solace in the swirling abyss of sorrow is as courageous an act as we might perform. To seek beauty in a massive pile of scattered dreams is cradling a tender innocence that cannot die. To find sanctuary within a crevice of noise is a display of unconscious heroism. To create within the rubble of destruction is elaborating upon the tenets of bravery. To have faith when the sky is crashing around you is to demonstrate the strengths of being more than merely human. To rise again from the grief that befell you is to succeed in gathering wisdom, to gather wisdom from such agony is a sacred thing born of wings. A poem written by Wanda Leah Brayton, the audacity of hope.
All right, folks, black women are three times more likely to die than white women from pregnancy-related complications. Uh, a registered nurse uh, and maternal health expert created Wolami, an app that advocates, uplifts, and educates pregnant women of color for better health outcomes. Uh, Leo George is the founder of Wolami. She joins us now from Lakeland, Florida. How you doing? Hi, Rowan. How are you? Great to be here. Doing great. So is it is it, is it Leo or Lyo? I want to correct. Lyo. Lyo. Okay. All right, Lyo. I certainly appreciate it. Um, was there any one particular thing that caused you to say, you know what, uh, I need to launch this app because it's needed? Yes, definitely. Um, I didn't want to die when I was pregnant when I started on my maternal health journey. And for me, as a nurse, I felt like I've seen too much. And there was just a lot going on where, you know, we see the data, we know what the data is, that black women are three to four times likely to die compared to white women on their journey. And this really sort of um, scared me, even as a nurse. I was working at um, a healthcare facility where, in the, in the rural area, where on when, you, when the moms are having uh, at given birth, they are overlooking the birthplace is overlooking a lake, and it's just a wonderful, nice experience that they have. The moms, um, before they actually leave the hospital, they're entitled to a complimentary massage. And compared to growing up in the District of Columbia, starting my journey as a nurse in the District of Columbia, and getting trained back then. It was like a lot of our training was not necessarily evidence based when you get to the um, when you practice in the hospital. So it was such a difference when you compare uh, the DMV area where there's a lot, a lot of, of wealthy um, black women compared to the rural America that I was, where it, the income level wasn't as high, but still they were had they had access to great health care. Um, but so when we compare that, I was just really shocked by all the things that I, I saw. And it really uh, sort of scared me when I was on my own journey. I did not want to die. And if there was a birth plan that I had, it was that. So when I went to grad school, I started studying, what can we do? What kind of care model can we create to improve the lives of black women and of women of color? So um, that's kind of how I started my journey. I had a professor who really encouraged me to do this. And when I thought about it, even though it's hard to be an entrepreneur, right? But um, I thought about it, there's really no savior that's coming to save us as black women. Um, I have the expertise, I have the lived experience, and it's just, I just had to dive in. And that's how my journey started. All right, questions from my panel. Monique, I'll start with you. Just congratulations uh, on everything that you're doing. The statistics are as alarming as you say, and in some places like New York, even more so. Um, what is it that, that women can do um, in advance, like when you said you started when you were deciding to become a mother and getting a plan together what what are just some of the things that we can do to help save ourselves and stay alive because as you say nobody else is coming to do it for us yes um i wallow me we really teach this idea of owning your pregnancy journey so first of all understanding what it is that you want your pregnancy journey to 
look like. And from there, try to understand and get some, uh, sort of educate yourself on what the healthcare system is like and will they provide would they provide the things that you are dreaming of? Would they provide how you want to be treated? Would they provide how you want your outcomes to be? And if you do, if you want, let's say, vaginal birth versus a C-section, if you want a home birth versus um, birth in the hospital, first of all, it starts by making sure you understand what it is that you want, and then uh, and then getting education and resources on who would provide that. Is the what what provider or what OB, what midwife will provide the experience kind of experience that I want, and what provider or hospital has the best outcome when it comes to vaginal breast versus C-section, and just really um getting in, in, in communities and researching and understanding so that we can own that journey, so that at the end of your journey you kind of feel like okay I own that it wasn't uh, it wasn't that I got pregnant and the healthcare system just took over and did whatever they wanted to do with me and part of it when you start to plan your journey uh, you start to understand that the healthcare system is really broken when it comes to uh, especially when it comes to maternal health so it, it's not going to cover everything that you want if you want to be able to breastfeed your kid it might not cover um, not all insurance will cover lactation specialists. Sometimes they do, and and we had a, a, a mom on our platform who needed, who wanted to talk to a nutritionist. Her goal was to be able to talk to a nutritionist so that she, so that she would prevent having um, gestational diabetes or any of those complications. But her insurance told her that unless you're diagnosed with a, with with gestational diabetes, we're not going to give you a nutritionist. So things like that, you see the disconnect. Our healthcare system is very focused on disease versus prevention. So for that, um, making sure that, okay, when you know that the healthcare system is not going to do that, and that's what you want, how can I afford it? If you, if you can, if you are one person who can figure out a way to get the things that you want to kind of create a plan um, and not totally rely um, 100% on, on the healthcare system because unfortunately it has shown to fail us time and time again. And um, there are moms who sometimes save up for her own birth, save up for whatever it is that you want. Um, just making sure that you you are able to pull in, pull in your resources. Even if it's putting that thing on um, the the on your shower list, right? Just putting in your resources and making sure that um, you are able to get to get the resources to get to the the endpoint that you wanted. So I would say owning your journey, Jason. figuring out what you want, um, and making sure that you have the resources and planning ahead to make sure that you get the resources if the healthcare system cannot provide it. Thank Jason. You. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Leo, for everything that you're doing. Um, my question is under the, the best scenario, if someone were to come to you and ask you, uh, how they should plan out their birth. Like they don't necessarily have an idea in their own head. If they wanted to, should they go with a doula or midwife or should they go to a hospital? Like how would you break it down under normal circumstances, a person with, uh, you know, normal health, uh, how, uh, what would be the, the best birthing situation? So, uh Thank you for that question. And, and we get that question a lot. Do you go with a doula or a midwife? I just wanted to make sure that I clarify that um, that uh, 
we at Wallumi, we definitely support having a medical person at your birth. So a, a doula is a support person at your birth. Their great evidence shows that they help uh, decrease C-section and all the wonderful things that having a doula does. We love doulas, but doulas are not medical professional. And honestly, they came into this work and they, they're not trying to be medical professional, right? And so at your birth, in order to be safe, um, to continue to improve outcomes, we recommend that number one, you find a medical professional that's going to be at your birth. So that's either an OB or a midwife. So the question then is, do you want an OB or do you want a midwife? So that's uh, where we where we want to start. If you are um, low risk, what they call low risk, and you have no um, underlying condition, then um, we would definitely um, suggest that you use uh, a midwife um, quite frankly our um, our platform one of the pillars of our platform is making midwifery philosophy accessible because we know that midwifery is, is the bedrock of, of the black community and then we as far as maternal health goes it started we have a rich rich rich, rich tradition of using midwifery and we also know that um, in other countries that are having better outcomes, interdisciplinary care is, is as great outcomes. And what that really means is like, you are able to use a midwife and an OB, and OB and midwives are able to work together seamlessly, um, unlike the US, and to, to work together to get a better outcome for the mom. So we would, we would suggest, because of the strong evidence um, that says that midwifery does um, shows improve outcome. We would suggest if you're low risk that you talk. To, you start by talking to a midwife, and if that's not something you you do, also try by getting suggestion from a friend of did they had a good experience with an OB? If it's an OB that you want, we love OBs. And there are definitely great OBs out there. So having those conversation, what who do, who do you want at your birth? Right? Who, what is a medical professional that you want at your birth? And then, if you can afford it, add some things like having a, a doula, um, having, if you want a, a perinatal massage during your journey, like whenever you're due to have one. All of those things that I kind of talk about it as when you're going shopping. So it's like, if you're going shopping, what do you need in your medical bag? Um, so what the first thing is a medical person, so OB and a midwife, or, or a midwife then decide what other things can support me in this journey. So is it a doula to give me some emotional support, to give me some practical support? And then do you want an acupuncture? Do you want um, a, a massage every other month when you're when you're able to do it? There's so many other things that you can add to that medical bag uh, that, can, that can really enhance your, your outcome. Because let's face it, a lot of the reason why we have bad outcome other than racism being the biggest thing uh, is also stress like the stress of navigating life as a black woman um it can be stressful and and code switching and all of those things and evidence has shown that that also has bad outcomes and so starting by adding all of those things is a wonderful therapist a wonderful i i strongly suggest and, and recommend a perinatal health therapist so adding all those things into your shopping bag. Um, and so that's one of where we start. And the other thing is, where do you want to have your child? 
is there a hospital nearby where everybody has been raving about there are platforms where you can use to kind of see the ratings of hospitals uh compare them uh, like hospital compare and all of those um platforms where you can rate where you can rate platform where, where platforms are being rated um and you can kind of figure out what is their rates like and when you find that provider also asking your provider what is what is your c-section rate and those kind of things having those conversations and, and that's that's where to start number one ob or a midwife do you qualify if you feel like you want a, a midwife talk to the midwife they always have uh, questions that they will ask you to make sure that you qualify then second what other um, professionals or support do you need on that journey then put those in, in the bag then where do you want to have your child um oftentimes that also goes along with if you want to ob or a midwife then you can do, then you kind of limit your choices when you pick those things so do you want to have your baby at home do you want to have it in the hospital is it safe to have your baby at home is it safe to have it in the hospital the provider that you pick do they deliver in the hospital or can they deliver at home so all of those things that's the first place to start and honestly just asking friends right. and family about what if they had a good experience or bad experience it's another way to start Folks, the uh, app is Walami. Uh, Leo George, we appreciate you joining us on the show. Thanks a lot. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.
California Attorney General Banta highlights new guidance to protect renters from illegal evictions. It's on YouTube, a virtual press conference to highlight new guidance to help protect renters from illegal evictions posted July 13th, that was a week ago, today is July 20th, 2022, well, we'll listen to what he's saying. I want to acknowledge and express my profound gratitude to the members. Oops, wrong way. Jason Terracone, Deputy Attorney General. Tina Sharon Pong, Supervising Deputy Attorney General, Nick Akers, Senior Assistant Attorney General, Ellie Bloom, Special Assistant Attorney General, Michael Redding, Special Assistant Attorney General, and Chief John Marsh, as well as our Division of Law Enforcement. California's families are facing a housing affordability crisis at levels never seen before. We are facing an eviction crisis. About one in seven renters in California is behind on their rent, potentially facing eviction. This crisis looks like a single mom whose bout with COVID-19 left her unemployed. The crisis is a young professional whose employer again illegally sent their paycheck late. This crisis is an elderly couple on a fixed income relying on life-saving medication that just doubled in price. Nearly 1.5 million Californians like them report being behind on their rent. And with the state's last remaining eviction moratorium expiring just days ago, the threat of an eviction is here. DOJ's housing strike force has received numerous reports of landlords across California trying to evict tenants illegally. These illegal so-called self-help evictions are an attempt to avoid the courts and illegally kick tenants to the curb without regard to their rights and the law. Self-help evictions take many forms, look like different things. They include landlords without a court order changing the locks, shutting off water or electricity, and removing tenants' personal property in order to force a tenant out of their home. This is illegal. Under California law, the only lawful way to evict a tenant is to file a case in court. That's why today I am issuing a new uh, issuing new legal guidance to law enforcement across the state, advising them to prevent and respond to unlawful lockouts and self-help evictions. In today's guidance, DOJ emphasizes that all to resolve a dispute between a landlord and tenant law enforcement should intervene to prevent illegal evictions. The law is clear. The only lawful way to evict a tenant is to go to court and have the court order the sheriff or the marshal to carry out the eviction. Unlawful lockouts and self-help evictions are serious offenses. They can result in significant legal consequences, including both civil and criminal liability. In today's bulletin, which has been shared with every law enforcement agency across the state. We provide the following guidance for landlord 
tenant disputes. One, law enforcement should never help a landlord evict a tenant by force or by threats. Two, only the sheriff or marshal or their deputies may evict a tenant and only with a court order. Other peace officers should not ask the tenant to leave their home. Third, law enforcement should advise the landlord or other persons involved that it is a misdemeanor to force tenants out of a rental property and should instruct them to allow the tenant back into the home. Law enforcement should advise the landlord to seek legal advice if they have an issue with the tenant or to lawfully evict the tenant. And five, law enforcement should write a report about the incident even if no arrest is made. Self-help evictions are unlawful, full stop. And today's guidance underscores law enforcement's important role in responding to reports of illegal evictions and their responsibility to intervene. It's also important to recognize that we all have a role here. Please continue to send complaints and tips related to housing, including illegal evictions, to DOJ's housing strike force at housing.doj.ca.gov. To find a free legal aid attorney in your area, you can visit lawhelpda.org. For our part at DOJ, as long as the housing affordability, availability, and equity crisis is here, we're going to keep on pushing forward. Every Californian deserves to have a roof over their head. I'm committed to using all the tools of my office to advance Californians' housing rights. With that, I'd now like to hand it over to Jessica to speak more about California Rural Legal Assistance's extensive work in this space. Jessica. Yes, thank you so much, Attorney General Bonta. Good morning, everyone. I'm Jessica Jewell, Deputy Director at California Rural Legal Assistance, Inc., also known as CRLA. And CRLA is a nonprofit law firm with 16 field offices across the state. Since 1966, we've provided free legal services to low-income residents of California's rural areas with a focus on housing, but also employment, education, income maintenance, and rural health issues. Based on what we see in our work at CRLA, we know that when people stay housed, it improves health, safety, and stability, and not just for the individual and their family, but for the entire community. So it's important that our laws limit landlords' ability to evict tenants. California law requires landlords to go through the unlawful detainer process and obtain a court order before they can evict a tenant. But while the unlawful detainer process provides tenants some protection, the process can also be intimidating and inaccessible, especially for low-income tenants who cannot afford to hire a private attorney when often landlords have strong legal representation. Even before the pandemic, our offices received numerous inquiries every day from tenants across the state who are unsure of their rights when a landlord violates the law by pursuing a self-help eviction. And temporary protections that were enacted during the pandemic sometimes with different levels of protection depending on where you live, only added to tenants' uncertainty about their rights. Unfortunately, we see landlords taking advantage of that uncertainty. Our clients, like A.G. Bonta said, have experienced unlawful lockouts, have come home from work to find their belongings removed from their apartment, have had their utilities shut off, received threats, or have been subjected to other acts of harassment intended to make their living situation unbearable, or otherwise pressure them to leave. We recently had the opportunity to help a client, we'll call her Sarah, who contacted CRLA after being illegally locked out by her landlord, who changed the locks to her home 
without ever serving a notice on our client and without filing an unlawful detainer. Sarah called the police for help and was erroneously told it was permissible for her landlord to lock her out. And even though she had every right to call a locksmith and get the locks changed back, he feared she could face arrest or worse if she tried exercising her rights. Unfortunately, Sarah contacted CRLA and we were able to inform her of her rights and help her regain possession of her home. But today we applaud the Attorney General's office for the action they have taken and the guidance they have issued today. The guidance issued today by the Attorney General's office is an opportunity for law enforcement to protect our communities. A law enforcement officer that's called to a landlord-tenant dispute can play a pivotal role in preventing people from becoming unhoused by clearly stating and upholding the law. The only lawful way to evict a tenant is to file a case in court and obtain a court order. Landlords and their agents operating in the state of California, whether they're renting one unit or thousands, have a responsibility to understand and abide by housing laws in the state and in their municipality. And most importantly, we want tenants to remember, you have a right to remain in your home until a court orders you to vacate. Find legal help as soon as you can because the eviction process moves quickly. And if you can't afford to pay a private attorney, there are free legal services in your area. You can find those by visiting lawhelpca.org. And you can also find vital tenants' rights information on our website at crla.org. At CRLA, we regularly offer tenants' rights workshops. We also operate a tenant justice project, and our staff can help tenants understand their rights, complete court documents in an eviction case, including fee waivers, so they don't have the excessive costs of filing in court. And we can help understand help the tenants understand other legal issues that might impact their housing stability. Again, the process can be overwhelming, so you can find all of this information on our website at crla.org. I want to thank Attorney General Bonta for having me here today and for the critical steps he and his office and his team have taken to ensure Californians remain housed. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jessica.